Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together we're digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. In this two-part series, we dig into the decades-long journey of cropping systems innovation with Mr. Wade Troutman of Open Heart Farms in Bridgeport, Washington. Thanks for joining us for part one of this two-part interview. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. Today, we are on Open Heart Farms LLC with Mr. Wade Troutman. Thank you so much for having me out. It's very exciting to be able to speak with you today. You got a beautiful view out here of the, with the river and all the sagebrush and there's orchards. It's, it's a great place you got up here outside of Bridgeport. Well, thank you. That's why I, one of the big reasons, the perks of living here is, is I really love this country. Excellent. Would you share a bit more about yourself, your farm and who you farm with? Well, I'm in my 70s. I've farmed all my life. Um, I was has has a child out with my grandpa and stuff, and I'm, uh, and so I've got to see the farm transition over all these years. All I ever wanted to do was farm. Um, our farm wasn't very big, and so I really didn't have an opportunity. There wasn't the income for a couple of generations to to live on the farm and I was encouraged to get a job elsewhere and uh, but that and so I did go to college but all I wanted to do was farm and I came back to farm with all this knowledge I had from college and uh, my father and I disagreed on a lot of stuff and apparently we're both very stubborn <laughs> well, you have to be to farm out in this country, I think. We ended up with a very good relationship. We just found out we couldn't farm together, and so an opportunity came up for me to lease some ground, and it was only 300 acres. It wasn't enough to make a living on in this country, and uh, worked construction in the winters and stuff to make ends meet, and I was very lucky because the opportunity to farm on a shoestring and without very little capital behind you was possible in the 70s. No million dollar combine? No million dollar combine. And, and uh, I think I got, had a Graham Hamey chisel plow that used and I ran sweeps on it and did the majority of my farming with an old 820 John Deere tractor, what they called Poppin' Jennies. And I might have had a total of investment with that, an old 95H of maybe $10,000 tops. And I could get $10 an hour working construction, which was a lot of money back then. I was able to start and um, farming and then we've just built from there and this country is is um, maybe 10 inch moisture it's a couple thousand feet in elevation but it's fairly far north and the glacier covered it and left a lot of rock on the ground 
And because it's not the best ground in the world, when I was starting farm, farming, when people retired and their children had left or they didn't have children, there wasn't a lot of competition to lease other ground because people would look at it and say, who in the hell would want to farm that? And I took the ground that nobody else wanted. I, I know I did one early soil test and it had 0.3% organic matter in it. And That's very low. Yes, and it was blowing. Uh, uh, we have very abrasive soils here, a uh, mix of volcanic ash and loess. And I used to joke is that the only way to hold your moisture is just to turn the rocks over in the fall. And, and, and usually it's wet under where the rocks are. That was my opportunity. If you really want to farm, I, I'm hoping you can still make that opportunity. And it also makes you a lot more innovative because you don't have the capital to buy the fancy equipment. You don't have the assets or, or uh, safety net to fail, although there's a better safety net now with crop insurance and things like that. But uh, that challenge, and it's one of the reasons we like to farm, is because of the challenge of it. If anybody could do it, then I don't think it'd be any fun. Well, so, Especially out here. I mean, really, you're talking 10 inches of rainfall, and that's probably very little um, summer rainfall. And and all of these conditions that we get out here in eastern Washington, you get some of the best of it. Yeah, well, and the thing is, almost all of our precipitation comes in snow. Uh, it's very unlikely, I mean, if it rains a half an inch in the summer, we're just happy as can be. Uh, we have snow from November to 1st of April, at least into March, and we fought snow mold, but we also have the type of soil that most of that moisture will go into the ground. Where our soil erosion problems come from is more from the wind. The management history has gone from uh, over the times when I grew up, the first chisel plows started coming out in the country, and this whole concept of leaving more stubble and not burning the ground so you can get uh, rod weeders through it. Uh, I was there as <laughs> that transition happened and, and has machinery began to develop. And I worked for a neighbor who got the first cultivator in the, in the country. So I, I've seen that. And then as we developed better equipment, then we started farming the ground to death, in my opinion. Uh, we got really good at cultivating. Um, we had decided that our ground was too fragile for that, and I'd been experimenting with no-till back in the 80s, I think. Because the technology hadn't been developed enough, it was very, very difficult to do here. Now, it's pretty much all in direct seed, has been for maybe 15 years. It was the philosophy or the management style all depends on two things, is how much time you got, how much money you got. And so the goal is to make enough money to farm again next year. So that, um 
kind of leads into my first question for you is um, how, how would you describe your management goals and how they might be different from the whole farm by crop, by different fields, and of course, over, over the years? Can you talk a little bit more about what motivates well, your decisions? There's a lot of factors going in. And, and one thing is because our weather is very variable, we'll go into periods of drought we'll have some lack of snow cover some years. Um, so adaptive management is the key, is you gotta kinda listen to mother nature and see what she's gonna give you this year and kinda guess how it's gonna go. Uh, I think you always have to be positive. You can't say, well, it's never gonna rain again, but uh, you have to keep those things in mind. Uh, we try not to ever go for the highest yield potential because that can bite you really bad if you're, you've laid a lot of cash out to raise that 100 bushel crop on ground that you'll luck, you're lucky if you raise 50, you're happy. So you adjust to what you see going on around you. Um, and then trying to stay current. But maybe the main goal I saw 40 years ago was we didn't have any organic matter. And then I realized we were compacting our soils. And so a lot of the management is how much of this can we fix in a lifetime? How much can we go back to when my grandpa came out and it was virgin prairie? Um, how far, because they raised pretty good wheat for the first 15, 20 years. No fertilizer, uh, very little inputs, and they were successful. And then as far as I'm concerned, they lost the organic matter and it's been a battle to get back to that point. And so I guess we manage for the future. We try, even though you're caught up into making a profit this year, you, you still, the, the long-term goal is always the underlying management factor. Well, you did say that one of your main goals is to not go broke. <laughs> on, in that vein, what experiments or trials do you currently have going on your farm? Well, we're, do, we're part of a crop rotation study where we're trying to find a summer annual that will grow here. So working with a group of younger farmers, they seem to all be younger than me now, and that wasn't the case. <laughs> Just seemed like a few years ago, but uh, so we were... We had decided, a group of us, to raise some sorghum, and uh, we got WSU and ARS contributing on this. So it's, uh, it's been a fun project. The best part of it is to sit down with growers in, in eastern Washington and trying to figure this out as a group instead of just as an individual. And so that's been the really fun part of this um, crop rotation experiment. And crop rotation is right up my alley because 
I have been trying to find something else other than wheat to raise all my life. Legend has it that you were one of the first people in Washington State to start growing canola. That's correct. A lot of this ground that I took over that I had the opportunity to lease was contaminated with feral rye. And they planted that in the depression because you'd have enough feed for the horses and enough seed to put in the ground for next year. And it worked, it helped them survive through the 30s, but then the rye had gone feral and the ground was polluted with it. So I raised a lot of spring wheat and it's very hard to do in this country because it's rocky and because we don't have spring rains or June rains we can rely on. And so I just started researching and asking around and well, Curtis Hennings down in Ritzville, they were talking about canola, so I want to try some. We planted some uh, really on the worst places where I knew the rye would just sod in the ground. And we'd uh, spray it with a sure too. And by golly, it worked. And so I wasn't raising it for typical rotation reasons. I was raising it to get past a weed that was just totally out of control. And so it turned out, to my amazement and surprise, that it was doing some other stuff I had never planned on. And that was, I didn't know I had a tillage pan until I saw the roots start J-hooking. And I'm saying, oh, we got a problem here. Well, we can't subsoil in this country because it's full of rocks left from the glacier. And so I'm saying, well, we got a natural subsoiler here. And it started breaking up the hard pan. And even though I was, I was just hoping to break even on the crop, we, there was no crop insurance on it at the time and stuff. We kept planting acres and, and getting a little braver every year. And after we started planting enough acres in our rotation, we were eliminating the need for spring wheat, which was a, not a profitable crop here. And it was the subsequent wheat crop that you could drive by and the neighbors could drive by that you just knew it was better. You could, you could tell from the road that it was just a healthier crop. That piqued my interest more than profit because that's kind of an ego thing. But I'm sure your neighbors love you. Then we kept good enough records that over time we we saw we were making more money off the canola than we were off the wheat. I know I worked with people like Frank Young and stuff to get the crop insured in this county because originally the literature said that you can't raise canola under 14 inches. And when I was first interested in it, uh, Jack Brown down at U of I was the only one breeding it. And he was doing it for the Palouse country for a higher rainfall area. And so 
I realized it was competitive up here because we weren't going for the huge yields. We just needed, we wanted something that would give us a similar cash flow as wheat did. And actually, I've kept records over the years, and, and we have found out that we've made more money on the canola than we have on wheat. And now you drive through this country, you see canola all over the place. So uh, I think at one time I had 10% of the canola, canola acreage in the state, and, and now it's like, just a drop in the bucket. Having a place to market it, though, kind of makes a difference, doesn't it? Well, that, that was a big game changer, that and federal crop insurance, because the first crop we shipped to Lethbridge, Alberta. And so if we got seven cents on the farm, we were, we were doing good. You must have seen some really big benefits from canola. I, your commitment really shows through there. Well, I think all... These trials, uh, if you don't think you're doing trials, you are. I, I don't know of a farmer out there. I, I remember when they brought out fertilizer, anhydrous ammonia, when I was a kid, you know, they were trying, well, if you put 20 pounds and then do a 40-pound test strip on your own farm, and people would do that. Well, at a nickel a pound, I can't afford 40 pounds of nitrogen, but... Uh, they tried anyway, even though it was going to cost them two dollars an acre. God, I wish those days were back. <laughs> but, yeah, those are some different numbers, aren't they? <laughs> but uh, you know, the economics were the same, and it was a stretch. But people were interested in trying. It doesn't matter how much how much money you have, because actually, poverty or or you know. How do I hang on here another year? I got to try something else because what I'm doing is not working. And what if I try this crop? Or what if we do this to the soil? What I've seen farmers do all my life. And, and uh, you figure out what works for you. And because you know doing the same thing is not working. Some of the stuff, I guess, we tried we tried before there was a market, and I think some people need the security of a market. I'm, I'm just always one that, I wonder if I can get this to grow. <laughs> and so it's, you do what sparks joy in your life, and one of the things i just very curious, and it's like, can I get this to grow? And find out some of the benefits later and you know if it's if it work eventually other people will start growing it too and and you and the market does develop um, i try to stay away from really closed markets where like clubs and stuff because even though it might assure you a profit in the short term in the long term we're still in a global marketplace. So that whole system has to be developed. Do you want to tell your Wade's Wheat story? You're talking about developing markets, and it seems like you've had your own actual direct marketing experience. Well, we, and actually, I give my wife a lot of credit this, for this. It was a time when we didn't have any cash, couldn't borrow money. I mean, 
And so we were trying to figure out a way to bring some additional cash on the farm. And so kind of out of desperation, I was going, well, it's not going to be that hard to go organic because we're not using that many chemicals in the first place. We went and got in the car and drove to Seattle and we started going knocking on doors from bakery to bakery and see if there was anybody interested in organic wheat. We were a little naive. There was probably a market there somewhere, but we didn't know where. So, And then we found a baker that had his own mill and, and uh, he was game for it. And so we started certified organic dark northern spring and we shipped it directly to Seattle to his bakery. His expense was enlarging his door because the one-ton totes we were shipping wouldn't fit through his original door and as he made his bread there he called the loaves from my farm Wade's Wheat. And so I'd been farming for quite a while at the time and, and I'd gone over to visit the bakery and I just shipped some, but I beat the shipment over there. And he'd ran out, and I was talking to him, and yeah, the truck will be here in the morning. And, and this woman come in, and she wanted a loaf of weighed wheat. And he says, well, we don't have any on hand right now. We will tomorrow, but Wade's right here. And uh, we were introduced, and she thought we were pulling her leg, and then we finally convinced her, but... For me, being a wheat farmer, that is the first time I'd ever met a customer uh, of mine, and that was kind of cool. And that relationship of direct marketing directly to the baker worked fairly well for me. Um, and it brought some much needed cash in at the time, and it was profitable even though we were only, uh, you know, our yields weren't that great, but we were able to maintain them. Uh, the biggest expense was bringing in organic fertilizer, uh, sourcing that all had to be shipped in. And then when he retired, I could not find that direct access. It was more going through a miller, that did organic grain, that sold it to a baker, that did stuff in volume. And then the profit margin went down because too many people were in between. Doing organic, I liked the concept. I didn't like all the tillage that needed to be done to control the weeds. The direct marketing was very necessary, very good at the time. Uh, but it's really hard to establish. It's personal relationships completely. And you almost, I, I've known quite a few people that do it, and you almost have to have a person doing it full-time, developing those relationships and marketing. That's the tough part of that, because I think most of us just, our happy place is on the tractor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we like to crawl on the tractor and, oh, Things are looking good out here. <laughs> so, yeah. that, I mean, uh, I, that's one of the, you need to do what sparks joy in your life. And, and there's nothing like getting on the tractor or, or when you have the luck of 
of pulling into the field and the yield beats expectation and the combines just growling with the with the load of wheat or whatever you're pulling through there. That I mean, we live for that. Let's face it. <laughs> well, and you know, as far as I can tell, it looks like your office has a pretty good view from the tractor cab. <laughs> yes, it, it, it does. We're up here, and we're right next to the mountains, so. Yeah. You talked a little bit about the fertility in the organic ground. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned from that trial? Uh, well, for one thing, we learned that to throw the handbook on fertility out because, you know, they say you need this much nitrogen to raise 14% DNS. Well, we were never even coming close to putting enough nitrogen on the ground from organic sources, but we were always hitting protein. And so, it probably gave me the realization other stuff is going on uh, in the ground. And even though I had gone to college and had microbiology and stuff, I don't know in the late 60s if the knowledge at the university was limited, but I do know today that there was a big chunk of the picture that we couldn't see that was missing on on production. So, and I still haven't figured out today all the functions that are going on in the ground and I don't I think some really smart people still haven't figured that out, but just to know that there's there's more to what the eye can see down there is is um you have to reach that epiphany and this whole idea of feeding the critters in the soil, that's a, that's a really new concept in agriculture because when I started farming, it was so many pounds of N and most of us put it on an, as an anhydrous ammonia, which was the cheapest, and it worked great for a while. But then things started going south and we needed more and more and getting less results. We weren't getting that, that first few years that people started using anhydrous ammonia, you could, I mean, the yields just jumped. But then it's, then what we found out is the pH changed in the soil. So on the organic end, um, what I didn't like was the amount of tillage we had to do to control weeds. It's the weed control is the hardest thing to do in organic. And unless you got the time and money to go out there and hand pull the weeds, it gets really, really tricky. Yeah, no, I, I like what you're saying though about the soil. I, I keep going back in my mind to the, just the definition of soil health as a vital living ecosystem. And how do, how do we support that moving forward with our, all of the other management practices that play into that? Do you want to talk a little bit about what experiments you have currently going on on your farm? I've always got some experiments going on, some intentional and some not. I mentioned that we're, we're raising some sorghum this year. Uh, it is the uh, crop rotations I'm interested in. I have uh, another maybe 80, 90 acres of sunflowers in. I tried those last year and they were a complete failure. 
talking, I think, to Professor Lyon. Uh, he was saying that they need lots of subsoil moisture, and so when we planted them last year, we didn't have any moisture in the second foot. And so even though we got three inches of rain in June, which was an anomaly, it grew weeds instead of sunflowers. So you never want to try something just once and say, well, that doesn't work. So we come back and tried it again this year, and I look like a genius out there. Uh, I mean, it's just a perfect looking crop. We haven't cut them yet, but I mean, they look good. Nice. And, and pretty weed free and the rows, I mean, it's just a great stand. It's everything you want. And we did have four or five feet of snow for several months this winter. And so I think the subsoil was the moisture. So I learned that from there is don't bother if you don't have the subsoil moisture to begin with. Not don't bother growing them. Is again, taking the cues from nature. And, and so the more diversity of things you can grow, and then you, as you increase your knowledge of, well, these are the conditions they need, how we get a different weather system, uh, you know, if we're in an El Nino period or climate change, whatever you want to call it, uh, you can take your best guess at it and start adapting. This year, the canola made it through the winter fine. The wheat, we did get hit with snow mold for the first time for a long time, and, and the winter wheat suffered. And, and growing up, as a wheat farmer, I mean, a good crop of winter wheat, I, I, it's still a joy. Mm -hmm. And um, there's nothing like it in our minds, but the, those crops in rotation, what we're really figuring out is it gives some boost in the ground. It, and I don't know the, all the science behind it. I don't need to know, I just know that it happens and finding crops that will grow and then finding markets for these crops is something that I, I just really enjoy trying to do and doing and seeing the results. But uh, I do know you can't just make up your mind in one year. And you also need to deal with the consequences down the road. And it's just like rotating your herbicides. Uh, who knew that during the drought that Beyond would have a 36-month <laughs> plant-back restriction? Oh. We saw a lot of damage out there from chemicals that were supposed to have disappeared that didn't. That's the other thing going down the road is, is so you've raised canola for myself for at least 30 years. What are the long-term consequences? There's some positive ones, but there, you always got to watch for some negative ones. The one thing I never had to worry about when I first started planting it was seed pod weevils. Now we have to check for them all the time because there's enough acres and they've came in, which requires you spraying an insecticide, which, well, how does that affect the bees? Because we're surrounded on the riverside by orchards and at the same time they're pollinating the orchards and they get really mad if you kill their bees. <laughs> so you get all these other challenges that when you start you never conceived of them 
And so it's, it's important to keep monitoring the changes because the, I'm in my 70s, I've never seen one year, I can't ever go back and say, yeah, this is just like it was in 64 because yeah, my memory's a little foggy of how it was in 64, but it's also, no, it's not the same. Every year's been different. And so, um, I know we got off subject, but anytime you're doing a trial, don't try it for just one year. Because I guarantee you things will be different next year. Well, I think, you know, from a, from a research standpoint, you know, you hear about how do we replicate, right? And in order to, to make it an experiment meaningful, we have to see what the trial does over a range of landscape conditions or field conditions, as well as over time, and those climactic conditions and, and capturing that year-to-year -year variability. So, I mean, it sounds like you're a researcher, Wade. Well, it's, it's, I think every farmer out there has something that really they get into, they enjoy, that's on the farm. I, I've seen people just completely rebuild a piece of equipment and stuff, and and they enjoy the challenge and they enjoy the results and they got confidence that, yeah, if we tweak this and, and, and do this and add a few RPMs here, this, this will be a better machine. And other, you know, everybody has their own little thing that, that sparks joy. And, and I think, I just like my curiosity always gets the best of me and I wonder if I can grow this because technically I shouldn't be growing anything in this harsh of an environment and so uh, sometimes it's a challenge that excites me. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's that part that it, it's maybe like a hobby where, where you know, yeah, I'm going to try safflowers or I'm going to try this because Nobody else knows how to do it, so I'm as knowledgeable as anybody else here. So. Well, that is one of the reasons I'm very excited to have you as a guest. Thanks again for, for talking with me about all of this. Um, can I ask you a little bit about what you're seeding all of these different things with? What kind of drill? I use, a, right now we're using a Bogal 40-foot drill with the narrowest shanks I could find because I'm into doing the least amount of soil disturbance I can. I'm pulling it behind a flexicoil cart that I had bought back in the 90s. And it was before John Deere even had a cart or anybody else. And the thing, it's not perfect, but I make it work. And so you're dealing with all these seed sizes and we do cover crop experiments. I'm still trying to figure that one out. I've gotten, I don't know, you just work with one piece of equipment long enough and, and, and uh, you just know its weaknesses and you kind of tweak around those and, and it's, uh, the small seeds are, um, I've got that down to pretty much a science where I just know exactly where to set that drill. Uh, the sunflowers were probably the most difficult because you're only putting, you know, 
they're calling for so many, like 18,000 seeds per acre. Well, we deal in pounds per acre. Mm -hmm. I think that's, in my experience, it's one of the things that made um, seeding like cover crop mix a little bit challenging because you've got all the different seeds and they're all seeded right. in different And, and on, on those, when you mix them together, the little seeds want to run out before the big seeds. And mm -hmm. so all these things are, are somewhat difficult, but I think if you want to do it, you can do it, and you don't, I mean, we don't run planters in this part of the country that would work perfectly, except for all the rocks in the field and stuff. And so I'm curious if I can find one cheap enough, I may try it, but then that will probably bring its own problems. We know what will run through our rocky ground right now, yeah. and and it's trying to, um, I think guys will, the more equipment-minded guys, if, if they see sunflowers or something like that starting to be, oh, there's some money in that, they'll, they'll, they'll figure out a way to get the planter through the ground. So actually, on, on the podcast, one of the first episodes was a conversation with Dusty Walsh, and he talks about his adventures um, in using a planter, including to seed sunflowers. If you're harvesting sunflower and safflower and sorghum, what are you harvesting with? Well, most of them, you know, with uh, just a 9770 rotor works fine. Um, most combines, although they're built, I think, now for corn more than for wheat, but you can adjust them for all sorts of different crops. It's, it's uh, for the sunflowers, we did have to take the reel off and put on some sunflower pans, they call it. And by the way, if you go Google sunflower pans, you will get at Target every store in the country trying to sell you pans for the kitchen with a sunflower on it. <laughs> Those sound pretty. Did you pick any of those up alone? <laughs> no, but I got like 10 million hits for those, and I couldn't get any for, you know, I'm saying, well, maybe I'm calling them the wrong name or something, but they're just a, a metal attachment you put on your header to guide the sunflowers in, and they are called pans, but it's not the first hit you're going to get on Google on where to find them. <laughs> hey, there's a good tip. Thanks for that, <laughs> We hope you enjoyed part one of our two-part interview with Mr. Wade Troutman of Open Heart Farms. Stay tuned for part two releasing in two weeks. As always, a big thank you to our guest today for sharing his wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, happy trials.